This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Lyrically was a problem for me. Mm -hmm. And when I read the lyric, I go, no, you're doubling down on misogyny. You're talking about S&M crap, right? And I argue with the manager. And I said, we're going to have a problem. In England, they censored it. The biggest mistake we ever made, I feel, we had two Grammy nominations, Best Song and Best New Artist. And for some reason, Doug and our manager says, well, you know, it's an award show, right? No big deal. And I was crestfallen. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, one of the most recognisable bass lines of all time has to be this. Instantly recognisable as being My Sharona by The Knack. That was the biggest selling song in America in 1979 and was a number one hit all over the world. The album it came from, Get The Knack, was also a massive hit. Number one in the US for five weeks. It went platinum in a matter of months. Now, the guy who played that famous bass line and can now probably play it in his sleep is Prescott Niles. And I caught up with him just a couple of days ago. And honestly, what a great guest he was. He was out gigging until 3am and then got up to speak with me at midday, his time over in the US, to accommodate me being about 8pm here in the UK. Now, he spoke for an hour and a half as well. Very open, very honest and very detailed about his career, especially the ups and the downs of the band. Now, at the back end of the 70s, there was almost a bidding war, a frenzy around who could sign these guys up. They'd built their reputation rapidly as a force gig in in LA with some incredible big name pals who joined them on stage. And you're going to hear those stories as well coming up very, very soon indeed. 
or before they were even signed up to a big label. So I'm really looking forward to you hearing this interview today. But firstly, as ever, I'm going to give a couple of quick hellos and shout outs. Make sure that you're following Vintage Rock Pod on all the social media channels. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. So give us a like, follow or subscribe to get involved on those channels. So with Niles being on this week's show, the main topic of conversation on the Vintage Rock Pod social media this week surrounded some of the other big albums of 1979. Now, I offered up ACDC's Highway to Hell, Fleetwood Mac's Tusk, The Clash with London Calling, and Pink Floyd's The Wall. And I asked you, which of the four was your favourite and why? Now, on Twitter, Jack Fuber went for Tusk, saying it's a double album with a lot of great songs on it. I also seen this tour twice back then, so one could say I lived it and loved it. Mark Reynolds on Facebook also went for Tusk, saying it's criminally underrated compared to rumours. Now, Joey Michaud went for London Calling by The Clash, saying lots of great songs showing the band's growing influences in rockabilly, ska, reggae, etc. Gert Jan Sweep also agrees with London Calling, as does Kingsley Samuelson, but he also offered up Dynasty by Kiss as his favourite album of 1979. ACDC's Highway to Hell was a popular choice, of course. Stephen Ball, Craig Bessett both opting for that one, and Joe Trefoletti saying Highway to Hell by a long shot. Jokal Borhi was split saying Highway to Hell when he was partying with his drinking buddies, and The Wall when he was at home partying with his stoner friends. Mike Norris was also torn on those two albums, but edged for Pink Floyd's The Wall purely for Comfortably Numb. Alan Tanabe was similar, saying, I'll take The Wall, just edging out Highway to Hell. Highway to Hell absolutely rocks, but the sombre complexity of the cynical lyrics combined with brilliant sounds is the reason I would choose The Wall. Sammy Peterman and Jorge Amarillo both backing the wall too. Another choice, though, came in from Stephen Welsh, who offered up the police's Regatta de Blanc, saying, For me, it's an album without a single duff track. An absolutely fantastic album. Probably my all-time favourite. Also, the first album I ever bought. But I think Patrick O'Brien, he summed it up brilliantly by saying, It was a great year for rock music. Here, here, Patrick. So back to this great year for rock music and one of the biggest groups of the year, The Knack. The band, classic lineup made up of Prescott on bass, Burton Avert on lead guitar, Bruce Gary on drums, and Doug Figer on the vocals and guitar. Now, as I said earlier, they absolutely burst onto the scene and they achieved levels of success that they could probably never have imagined. But there were a lot of things which went against the band too. Choices by management and certain band members, critics who love to tear people down and the pressure of trying to repeat the success of My Sharona. Now, Prescott talks through all these issues candidly and in depth, and it's a fantastically open interview. So I really hope you enjoy this brilliant chat with him. It may shed some light onto a lot of things that happened back then too. So here you go, the knack bass player, Prescott Niles. Thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Prescott. I mean, incredible stories that we're about to hear from you. I can't wait to get to them. But let's start right at the back of the beginning because uh, you've got Brooklyn roots, haven't you? Well, growing up in Brooklyn was a good time. They had a lot of shows called, um, I think, Murray VK put them on, before the, actually before the Beatles played. It's one of the first rock shows I ever went to. It was the Ronettes, a little Stevie Wonder, little Stevie, was 14, and the Dovells. I don't know if anybody knows where they are. And that was one of my first rock shows. And that's when I decided after that, probably a couple of years later, after driving cross country to California, mm-hmm. 
and realized that New York was in black and white and California was in color. Uh, I realized when I got back to New York, I wanted to be a musician. I gave up a baseball career. Wow. Or rather, I had a scholarship to go to play baseball, be on the New York Yankees. But uh, that kind of dwindled when I saw the Beatles, like everybody else in the world. And uh, I decided, but I, I picked up real quickly, had talent. And Brooklyn was a great place. A lot of musicians were there. And, there was a, and all the uh, Italian kids in my neighborhood, somehow they had basements. I lived in an apartment building. They had basements. We can set up, play ping pong and rehearse. So that's one of my, that started my career, but you can ask me questions and I'll follow up on that one. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the baseball thing. I mean, having a scholarship, that, that must have meant that you were a very good player indeed. I was a good player. Certainly growing up, it seemed like a natural for me to do it. It wasn't like I worked on it or anything, but as I got older and I realized that there's a, there's a long path to getting professional. And with music coming on, I remember my last uh, team game, that's when Sergeant Pepper came out and somebody was playing on the radio. I heard that. I go, okay, got to go. <laughs> and, and plus all the great music that was coming out at that time anyway. And I got in the band pretty quick, luckily. And, you know, I figured to be a drummer, I couldn't, which I, I love drums and I couldn't because I live in an apartment. And then uh, to play lead guitar was impossible unless I put in time. And then rhythm guitar was boring. But I love bass because you had McCartney and James Jamerson and all the and bass was coming into prominence then. And John Edwards was one of my heroes. And I love The Who. What, God, what, oh, one of the first bands I saw was The Who. Uh, it was before they uh, they, they st- uh, turned it over to Phil Maurice. And one of the first shows I saw with the Yardbirds with Jimmy Page, going, wow, this is amazing. And then The Who was my one of my favorite bands. And I saw them. And, and that was the start of my uh, learning about music and Jefferson Airplane were there the following week. And all the, Bill Graham was a genius. Because he had blues groups. Uh, Joan Baez played there, Richie Havens. He had the acoustics thing going on. And then you had some of the hard rock, especially seeing The Who and Jimi Hendrix there and uh, among the many. It was a good start. Incredible stuff. Somebody once told me, as long as they give you a round trip ticket, wherever they want you to go, go, right? So I said, okay. So I got a chance to go to Boston. And that's when Aerosmith was forming and, Modern Love, it was a really good music scene. Stayed there for a while, and then an uh, American guitar player called me and said he had a record deal uh, and a rich factor in England, so I went to live in England for two years. Mm-hmm. And the music scene in England was pretty cool from 73 to 75. And a lot of glam rock going on, and uh, uh, at that time, Mike Chapman, great producer, and he was writing a lot of songs with his partner for Slade and Susie Quattro. And so I lived there for a while. We uh, came back to audition drummers in America in the middle of me living in England. And Bruce Gary was one of the drummers we auditioned, but he ended up going to England to play with Jack Bruce. <laughs> so it's like, you know, one of those like, ah, crap. Anyway, so uh, I came back to L.A. after England, basically to play with Bruce for a moment. And some other project. Then he went back to England, is what I was trying to say. He got me a ticket to come back from uh, England. So so I was do, playing in a few different bands in L.A., you know, checking them out. Nothing was really happening at that time for me. So anyway, one day I get a call from Bruce Gary, saying he's been playing with Doug Feigenberg and Burden of Air, doing demos, and they want to put a live group together. And, you know, I had... To, kind of Paul McCartney vibe at that time. (laughs) And uh, I had the chops of John Ellisle sort of went down and had a first rehearsal. And I knew this was different than any other band had been in playing with Bruce Gary is one reason, but Doug was and Burton were great songwriters and there was an energy to it. And, and and, uh, I felt, okay, this might be good. 
We did an audition for Casablanca Records at the time. They weren't sure between Kiss and Donna Summer, you know, we didn't really fit. So um, we, we just said, okay, we played the Whiskey A Go-Go June 1st, 1978. And that's when we all decided we were going to be a band. And that started our uh, assault on the L.A. scene. Now, there's a lot of stories in retrospect saying that the Knack was a product of Capitol Records investment. That basically they saw us and they promoted us. And then finally, we got the record deal. It was all their master plan to make the new Beatles. You know, just a lot of things written. No, we played, we played every club, every show, and we started generating uh, audiences based on the quality of the live group. It was a great live band. And that's one of the reasons I always say we weren't one-hit wonders. We were one-take wonders. Because basically, most of the recording we did, it was all one-take in the studio. So in, anyway, we're doing the L.A. scene for a while. Mike Chapman came down and heard us. He was one of the producers. We might be interested. And he just said, I love you guys. Let's do a live album, kind of, you know. Uh, so we, we did the scene. Now, in L.A. as well, we had the the knack, in other words, to attract uh, a lot of musicians. Now, at the time, there wasn't a lot of jamming. Uh, you know, there was with established groups. But, you know, one week we were jamming with Eddie Money. Yeah, he yeah. came up on stage. We did two tickets for Paradise. Then... Um, Tom Petty came down. We did Mona and Not Fade Away. Now, Bruce had a connection to Bruce Springsteen. So all we did was invite people up before they were there, which was kind of rare, but we knew our musicianship was really good. So he played with us, which really got a lot of buzz in the music scene. Uh, later on, we had Ray Manzara came up. He was another friend of Bruce's, and we wow. did a couple of Doors songs. So in other words, we were getting cred as musicians, as well as a great live band. And nobody associated the Beatles with us yet. <laughs> and as we, we kept playing Capitol Records, one of the first people to come down to see us play. And they really liked the music. They liked the energy. Pretty much all the record companies were bidding for us at the time. And we felt that Capitol was probably the most uh, family for us. You know, it felt like family. All the people saw us, even though we were offered a million dollars by Polygram. Wow. Which was a lot. But we figured if you, if you get a million, you owe a million. <laughs> Right? And we had brains. We've been around longer. You know, we were seasoned musicians at that time. Yes. We were some kids that just, hey, man, we're cool, you know. It, it was more than that. So we figured, now nah, Capital fell, right? We signed with Capital. So it wasn't that they made us Capital. We chose them. Now, the logo on the album was Doug Gunn. We want to get, like, the old logo on the album. The front cover was not It's supposed to be Meet the Beatles, a good friend of mine, Randy St. Nicholas, who was transitioning into photography, who ended up becoming a wonder great photographer, you know, as a result of her own talents and did a couple of books with Prince and you can look at Whitney Houston, everybody and the BJ, she's the best. So she was a shooting, it wasn't planned to be anything. I just mentioned that because the back cover was Doug doing a play on the American release of an album called Something New which had them at, 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 at like a TV studio. So that was kind of Doug's like tongue in cheek Beatle thing. That started a little bit of the trend, but nobody at that time ever saw us play. We were more like the who, more like the kinks, you know, hard edged, you know? Phenomenal. And just talking about the, the recording of that first album then, Get the Knack. I mean, you spoke about Mike Chapman there. I mean, it, it, it was days, wasn't it, that you were in the studio? It was a, it was a really quick process. Well, yeah, pretty much. Well, here's the chronological uh, timeline for us. We, when we started recording, it's a studio called MCA Whitney, where Mike liked doing a lot of recordings. 
So Blondie had just started and they were working on Heart of Glass. And Mike actually co-wrote some of it. So we cut all the basic tracks, mastered the album, and they were still working on Heart of Glass. <laughs> Which means Mike is a perfectionist, but we cut the album, had it mastered within a month which was record time. We probably spent maybe 18,000 on the recording and maybe 3,000 on wine. Doug <laughs> liked fine, fine wine. But it was straight. There were no groupies. It was, it was just Mike. We come in and Mike goes, okay, let's do it. In, in other terms, Sharona was one of those songs where Mike just says, okay, let's do run through, right? Yep. We go, okay. So he goes, play like you're playing to an audience, you know? Okay. So he played Sharona as a run through. You know, most people do a run through and then they do a take and then do another one. We played it through, and Mike goes, "Okay, can we, let's uh, let's move on." He goes, "What do you mean?" He says, "We got it." He got what? He just ran it through. He goes, "Nope." He says, "We got it." it uh, we went in there and go, "Well, it's pretty good." We didn't know the difference between, uh, let's say, a, 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 a how can you explain it? It wasn't there were no mistakes because technically we were really good, but there was a thing, Mike, the freshness. Sometimes when you record. When you do a song five, six, seven times, it loses its uh, uh, innocence. Mike caught it the first time through. I've uh, jumped a couple of leads because he you know, played rhythm on the basic track. And then Doug fixed a couple of uh, notes. That was it. And Mike said, let's move on. So pretty much we did three, four songs a day, basic tracks. And Mike loved it that we were prepared. It wasn't that we were better than anybody else. But some other groups like to perfect it in the studio. And some groups would take months in the studio. You know, but we figured if Mike said it was good, it was good. Mike was the only one to say that Sharona was number one single. I was going to say yeah. that I did see an interview with him where he said he, the first time he heard it, he, he stopped you guys and said, look, that's a number one. Yeah. And I wrote it in my journal. I said, Mike Chapman says <laughs> Capital didn't release any singles. They released the album. And at the time we were in Europe playing some you know shows. And then we, we heard that you know the record was released first that it was people Sharona was the most requested song in America and then the next week we played Liverpool and the first time we ever heard a Knack song was across from where the Beatles played the cavern was Eric's place we're in a pub and they played good girls don't and then we thought well how do we get to here where the Beatles played we're hearing our song on the radio so that was one of those wonderful moments of Wow, we you know we made whatever we made. Didn't make it, but we made it, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we anyway we heard that it was the most requested song in America. The great thing about that was not releasing the single. The album went to number one first mm -hmm. for a few weeks, and people got to hear the whole album. See, after the you know because Sharon was such a huge hit, a lot of people maybe would have been discouraged to hear the whole album. You know, back in the day, even in Sharon was the second first song in the second side. It wasn't the first song in the first side, yep. which is, you know, how people do things back then. Sequencing was a big deal, mm -hmm. but radio loved it. And we came back and we, and we couldn't believe it actually the uh, interest for the album and the single and it was number one. So that was a good indication of at least we're heading in the right direction. Right. <laughs> you could say that. And Robin Hilburn was a big uh, film uh, uh, music critic in LA. Uh, they did a cover story on us, but what they did was they had get the neck like, on top and meet the Beatles reversed on the bottom. So he started making this connection to the Beatles. The only song that sounds like the Beatles was maybe tonight and the backwards mm -hmm. drums. But for some reason, that's when critics started comparing us to the Beatles. 
which you never want to have happen. So how did you feel at that point? I mean, you guys are a, a, a fresh band and, and you're just breaking through and to be labelled with, with something like that and compared with the greatest band of all time, it's, it's, that's difficult, isn't it? Well, it, it, it was fantasy for a while. We didn't realise the fact of the huge power of the single and then the image, they go Capitol Records, people started to assume that we were manufactured. Which didn't, you know, as one of us, no, guys, we, we, we did the work. You know, nobody gave us a credit card to buy our success, literally. That bothered me a little bit. Then came the backlash. Because we did our album for so cheap, other bands were expected to do the album as cheap. If then I can do an album for 17000 why are you guys in the studio for three months? Then we got a little bit of blowback from musicians going, fuck the knack, man. You know, we, we're expected to do something we, we didn't expect to do. That makes any sense, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, so even though there was a camaraderie, there was a little bit of isolation because they, they had a pressure we didn't have. So, and then we came back and we did our US tour and, and we ended with Australia and Japan, which is fantastic, you know? Arriving in New Zealand, New Zealand and saying we're number one in New Zealand. It was like, we're number one in New Zealand? It was great. I like New Zealand. It was a trip, right? <laughs> Fantastic and, uh, stuff. And we, we, you've mentioned you've mentioned Sharona. I mean, we, we've got to touch on it, haven't we? Um, thank God that the, the girl wasn't called Jill or Edna or Doris or something like that. Well, it could have been Peggy Sue, but, you know. <laughs> or, well, it, it was interesting because, well, Sharona, first of all, is a, is a very common name in Israel. It's the same as Sharon. But Sharona was like an odd thing to people. I don't know why it was Sharona. So people would go, what, you know, I mean, a few years ago, uh, somebody asked me, said, so what's your Sharona? An interviewer. I go, well, it, vi it vibrates. I'm sorry. <laughs> he goes, what? And I go, yeah, it vibrates. Okay. So a, because of the song's success, there's that weird kind of mystery what it's about. And if you know the lyric, it's certainly about a girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's typical rock and roll lyric. We were called misogynists. Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order 
plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Now, if Led Zeppelin or, you know, other people, let's say, did songs that we accuse of massage, it would just be guys writing about girls. But for some reason, there was like somebody, some woman said, they're misogynist. I'm going, how does that happen? Look at all the other songs out there, right? Now, that was a little bit of blowback we got. Um, the U.S. tour went wonderful. And, okay, so we came back to L.A. Everything's great. Now, we hadn't done the American TV yet. We had done TV in every country. You know, we did Top of the Pops. We did everything. Yeah. Our manager and Doug figured we had to do the right show. So Don Kirshner's rock concert, Midnight Special, uh, we didn't do. And even now when I'm watching, you know, YouTube clips of them, going, why would, didn't we do it? Dick Clark, who wanted us to be an American bandstand, right? We didn't do it. And he actually had a treatment to do a movie saying we were the new whatever we were supposed to be. We didn't do American bandstand, even though we could have. And we were offered that. Remember Mork and Mindy, that big show? Yeah, right? yeah. Rock West? No, 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 no. We were offered to appear as maybe from another planet. <laughs> so all those things would have made us more a household name. None of that happened. So in a way, we had the picture, we get the knack. We had uh, some radio interviews, but not having American TV was insane because we had so many opportunities. I think that, and there was no MTV till a year later. So we could have been much more acceptable as personality. So whose decision was that then? Because I've read before that the fact that the Knack didn't do too many interviews, especially in America, and that kind of went against you with the critics as well, didn't it? Whose, whose decision was that? Well, John Peel did a thing on us. He came on a tour bus and we did an American tour and interviewed Doug. And Doug was very smart and I think he had a chip on his shoulder. So I think sometimes in interviews he might have been a bit negative and perhaps that maybe not at the right time to be condescending. Mm-hmm. Not of us, but just the music scene. And so that started to get a little bit of a negativity. Our manager felt we were great together on interviews. We were, in a way, we played off. We were very funny, intelligent. Yeah. It, it really worked, but a lot of people didn't get that. When Doug started being more prominent, it became more focused on his vision of who we were than who we were. You know, And his own issues maybe came up. So that's where, in a way, we wanted to limit it. As far as decision-making... I think our manager felt we had to do something extraordinarily special. 
because we're off at all these shows, even though it's stupid, we're just a rock and roll band, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of doing those things, we didn't, we didn't do. And that caused a bit of a thing where who do they think they are? Yeah. Which contributed to the snobbery. The biggest mistake we ever made, I feel, we had two Grammy nominations, best song and best new artist. I wanted to be invited to the Grammy Awards all my life, let alone being nominated. So we had this chance to go back to Japan, play Budokan and do this big tour. And for some reason, Doug and our manager says, well, you know, it's an award show, right? No big deal. And I was crestfallen because if we had played My Sharon Alive, because we're a great band, that would have cemented us into American culture. Well, we didn't. Went to Japan. It was a bad time to tour. And the night of the Grammys, we were in a snowstorm up in Sapporo, Japan, going, what the F? And we lost. Wiki Lee Jones won Best New Artist. And that was like the start of what are we doing here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we, anyway, the second album was also a problem. Should I go on to the second album? Yeah, carry on. Yeah. Now, Capital wanted to release another two singles. But for some reason, again, Doug, after talking to Scott, thought we should do a second album. Because we had enough material that wasn't on the first album. And, and Doug sometimes would say later on that, like, um, we were going to do a double album, but Capital said we should do a single album. That's not true. We did a single album because that was the best material. Yeah. If you know what I mean. But um, now we had Mike Chapman do the second album. And Mike was not the Mike we knew because he was going through a divorce. So Mike wasn't, wasn't quite as jubilant, as wonderful and they, I felt bad about that. And Mike gave it his best, but I knew if he had a say, he wouldn't have put the album out. Also, Doug had Sharona coming to the studio as well. I guess Sharona with Yoko comes to mind. Now, Sharona was great. We all loved her. But with the success, Doug started bringing Sharona with him places because she got attention. Yeah. So um, that caused a little bit of a riff in the studio. You know, Doug was getting his romantic rock and roll fantasy happening. I wish I had a girlfriend who can come, you know, be that. <laughs> Write a song about. It, it was she was great, but you know, let's say the enthusiasm was dissipated by that and Mike's situation. And I never felt. Did you hear Baby Talk Sturdy? Right. Yeah. Well, lyrically was a problem for me mm-hmm. because Doug and in, in the mind were going to be the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, sort of. Right. You can't be that. And when I read the lyric, I go, no, you're doubling down on misogyny. You're talking about S&M crap, right? Yep. That was me. And I argued with the manager. And I said, we're going to have a problem. And believe it or not, it was in England, they censored it. Because mm-hmm. of the lyric. If, if you know some of the lyric, you get it. Japan was great because they got all the words wrong. <laughs> so nobody knew what this song was about. <laughs> so I felt that, first of all, everybody, you can't underestimate the power of my Sharona. If you're going to have a follow-up single, it better be better, if not as good. Capital wasn't even sold on rushing a new album because they wanted to do two more singles. So that started the decline, actually, because the critics were waiting literally with gun pens, pretty yeah. much. They were ready to shoot us. We gave them everything they needed to fulfill their prophecy. Yeah, they were one-hit wonders. Now, by the way, Good Girls Done was the top 10. People, a lot of people never mentioned that song. Yeah, yeah. And number one I in mean, Canada as well, wasn't it? Yeah, Canada did very well. And some other countries, you never expected to do mm-hmm. well. But I was really proud of that song too, you know. 
And uh, so that started the, uh, the, the blowback. And there was a guy who invented something called Nuke the Knack. Yes. You ever hear of that? Yes, I did. Yeah. There was pins uh, and T-shirts and everything. Yeah. He wanted to make money. Right. I don't blame him. So uh, Bruce and I used to go to uh, a record swap meet. They had a Capitol Records in the, in the lot. One time we were there, I think right after we got back from our tour and the guy was there. And we said, hey, what's going on? He says, yeah, he says, can we buy one of those? So I got a picture with me and Bruce wearing Nick yep. and that. We thought it was great. Or, or honk if you slept with your owner, right? <laughs> so that was a good one. So I didn't mind the backlash. What I didn't like was the fact that the pressure that we created for ourselves ended up setting us up for failure. And, and I can't, couldn't blame Mike for not trusting his instincts and saying, no, don't put out that song. Because everybody wants to hear another My Sharona. And if it's anything less, you guys are going to get, you know, whacked, literally. Talking about the, the difficulties when the, the second album came around then. So uh, album number three came after you, you broke up and then you got back together. Tell us the story around that then. Okay, so um, after the second album came out, well, first of all, it came out with a lot of hype. The album entered the charts. It was in the, in the 40s. Baby Talk Sturdy entered the charts high only because of the hype, but immediately people were going, that's no my Sharona, which again, you can't, with a success like that, you can't assume that people are not going to compare it. I don't understand why our manager at the time did not take that stand. Yeah. So, um, and we were in Japan when it came out and we're not here promoting it. We get back here, everybody's getting pretty depressed at the time. Of course we were. The only thing we looked forward to was, again, we've been playing the clubs all that time. So we got back to L.A. and all of a sudden we're playing the Forum, which is, you know, 18,000 seater. We sold it out in three hours. Wow. So all the fans that were loyal. And that was one of the best shows we ever played, I believe. And we ended with We Love You, too, as an encore. We love that Stone song, of course, right? Yes. But that was the high point at that point. It was just, apart from the album failing, right? This was in March of 1980. And after that, it was like, okay, what are we going to do now? Then Doug started to feel like, well, you know, maybe I'll go in a different direction. Uh, no, you know, you're not. Capital wanted another album. And then there was some friction with Bruce, our drummer. So we kind of had it. So that's when we had our first kind of breakup. And Doug was, uh, I think, isolating himself. He had his Sharona. Yep. So they can split off a bit and he could be more of a... Uh, a matinee attraction with Sharona. Oh, look, there they are. <laughs> but it was cool. So we were pretty well split. Doug wanted to do a new album. If Bruce didn't want to do it, we'll go on without him. And then John's assassination. I mean, it was so devastating. I mean, nobody could believe it. And I called Doug and I said, hey, what's, you know, how are you? Can I see you or something? So... He said, yeah. So I went over and, you know, we got through the talk and I said, so why don't we play again? He, he goes, yeah, we, we should. So Burden was down and Bruce was cool too. Because we were all like going, what the hell happened? Mm -hmm. And after tossing a few producers around, we all said, if Jack Douglas won, you know, Doug, of course, because the John Lennon thing, right? Yep. But if Jack Douglas is at all interested, sure. So we knew who he were and he said, yeah. <laughs> and he came to L.A. He was still in a lawsuit with Yoko, and which was distracting at times. We'd disappear for hours on the phone. 
back then there were no cell phones, but a big, you know, <laughs> wherever he was on. But that album was masterful. And I, lo I love Jack for doing that. That's the best album we ever played on, the, the range of musicianship. But again, it wasn't the right commercial. So after that, we did a few, uh, we went to Europe, we did a few things, you know, Eurovision, yep. big show. And then there was some like thing with, you know, Doug wanted to go see Jim Morrison's grave and I go, why do you want to do that? <laughs> I mean, just, I don't know. I mean, there's a picture of it, but he was starting to, he felt more like a lead singer than he did a group member. And I think that was where we figured, okay, well, this ain't working. So, so that was it. We call it quits then. Yep. And then myself, Burton and Bruce was putting a new group together with an actor named Stephen Bauer. Stephen Bauer was in, you know, Scarface, one of his first movies, right? Yep. And he had great charisma and he was awesome. He wasn't a great singer, though, but he was great, right? <laughs> so we figured uh, we got a record deal off of Virgin. But unfortunately, our manager ended up in jail for uh, being involved in this, one of those L.A. weird kind of scenes with drugs and debutantes, you know. I mean, actor's daughter, so to speak. I knew nothing about it. So he was trying to negotiate a deal from jail for Virgin Records, but we said, nah, maybe not. <laughs> we could have got a deal. So we did nothing for a while. We got a chance to play for a benefit for a promoter in LA. We got back together for that. Then we said, hey, you know, maybe you should try to play together again, you know? Which was cool because all the, all the animosity we had was kind of spelled out at that point, mm -hmm. I think, you know? We cut a demo. Um, with somebody named Val Gray, very, very, he had Kim Carnes at the time okay. producing. And it wasn't a good match, but we cut some demos. We did a TV show, uh, kind of a weird one. Why would we do a TV show then and not <laughs> earlier? Yeah. And we didn't really have great material. And we kind of like, uh, we tried it with Bruce again. There were problems. So that didn't work. So we replaced Bruce with somebody named, well, first we replaced him with Pat Torpy who ended up playing with us later on. Pat ended up leaving us to join a Mr. Big, yep. which is a wonderful progressive rock band, you know. And we had to get another drummer. We got Billy Ward, a New York drummer. And that's when we, uh, Doug called, Don was a friend of his. And Don was really building his reputation as a great producer. And this is 90, we started. So he was our producer for the album. And the sound, we had a, uh, I don't know if you know that song, Rocket of Love. Yes, yeah, yeah. First track on the album, it was, yeah. it was an FM hit. It, you know, it was top 10. And it was a great song. And um, we were signed to Charisma Records. And Charisma were a new, label, uh, new label, so to speak, from Virgin. And uh, as we did a video for that song and getting ready to tour with different management, you know, Charisma folded. So even though we did the video, they never got the push we needed. Never got a chance to do a second single. So we get an FM success. The musicianship was great. Don did a great album. And apart from Rocket of Love, it's probably the only album Don was did not have a platinum album. Sorry, Don. <laughs> but he, he loved the band. So again, after that, we said, what did we So we toured because of Reality Bites. Sure, it was Reality Bites. Yeah, of course. Which Can I ask you a, a quick question, scene? if you don't mind? Um, with, with Serious Fun, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times about the misogyny that was, that, was, that was put your way and things like that. In terms of Serious Fun, I mean, the album cover itself, um, with, with the schoolgirl on the front, I mean, whose decision was that then? I can see you covering your eyes. What, what, was, what was the decision behind that? Well, the, well, first of all, Serious Fun was a good idea. 
you know, the, the idea of the contrast, right? It wasn't my idea, but when you really look at it out of context, the girl with a hula hoop on fire, it was kind of brilliant, actually. The video, it's got, it's got a girl riding a rocket. Hello? <clears throat> but that's a bit misogynist, too. But at that point, because we weren't that famous or popular, the misogyny wasn't a big deal anymore, right? Because on the album, my favorite song was Serious Fun because the lyric is all about reading and it's, it's fantastic. So Rocket of Love got us notoriety. We did a tour because of Reality Bites. Came back to LA again to figure out what are we gonna do. But um, after the Serious Fun, we took a pause again. We did, we did some demos and, then more, and it wasn't right. And then uh, we started playing with Bruce again. And then we started writing different, Doug was gonna do a solo album. And, um, you know, we weren't that enthusiastic about it. We got a new manager named Danny Sugarman. Now, Danny was the Doors manager for a while, wrote a book about the Doors. And he came and boy, he said, look, guys, we, you know, why don't you write new songs? He said, Doug was good, but we want that song. So first time myself, Burton and Doug started writing together. And I did a song called Harder On You. We, I think that the album Zoom has some of the best songs we've written. Now, interestingly enough, Bruce was causing some problems. We said, Bruce, what are we going to do? And it was problems at the time. So we started figuring out who we're going to play drums with. And, uh, and Doug said he met Terry Bozio, and Terry Bozio was interested. And I'm going, okay. I didn't ever think that Terry Bozio... <laughs> I mean, I knew for missing persons and everything, but I had no idea because he was playing with Jeff Beck and all these, but he liked rock and roll. So we gave Bruce a chance and Bruce didn't respond. And so Terry Bozio, we did that album called Zoom. So anyway, we did a, a short tour. We went with Rhino Records and they didn't promote the album because they didn't know how to promote a new album. They did greatest hits with us too. And as the tour went on, um, you know, it was like obvious that, uh, well, maybe this wasn't right. So we got to play in Detroit. Well, three days later, Doug got laryngitis in the middle of a tour. He was screwed up. Terry got bronchitis. The tour was over in a week. So then after that, we broke up again, by the way. It was a really good album. Anyway, just saying that's kind of it. So that led to that other time period of nothing. We changed drummers again. Then we got back together for uh, Tony from Smile Records got hold of us. We signed to do an album deal. And that's when we did the Funhouse, and uh, not Funhouse, 2001, House of Blues to launch that album, Normal is the Next Guy. Yeah. Uh, the album cover, well, you know, it wasn't <laughs> my favorite. It didn't want to have look like an, an alien child <laughs> with a green and haze. I never yeah. got it. And being a father, I go, I hope my kid didn't come out <laughs> looking like that, you know, three. And I don't know, but it was a good picture of us, which actually in the new release is a great group picture of us on the live album. Not that picture. I, don't, I still don't know why. And I saw Normal is the next guy. Doug did a rap on it, which was kind of cool. And the songs itself were not consistent. I have "It's Not Me" is my one of my favorites. Um, uh, maybe one other one, uh, just two others which were pretty good. But you know, it wasn't really a knack album. Doug, some of the songs Doug had written was for an album with somebody else. 
So we ended up using those. So uh, anyway, after the uh, that thing we did with uh, Tony and we, we broke up again for a while because we didn't know what we were going to do, you know? Um, so we got interest for, um, from different people, like, oh, well, why don't you do the knack thing? You know, just because we should. So now Pat Torpy, who had played with us earlier on for that brief period, you know, he was available. We got a chance to go to Japan and start touring again. We didn't have an album to tour from, but it was a lot of interest. So we got back together and uh, we got to tour Japan and, and do a lot of shows in, in, in the States. Pat was a great drummer. His vocals also helped out a lot too. So there's a thing called uh, World Tour Cafe. We did in Philadelphia, probably in 2000 something, six, six. That was a pretty good indication of where we were at that point. You know, we played with Pat. Uh, Doug got diagnosed for cancer. Uh, we were, uh, now the odd thing was, uh, Doug got diagnosed with cancer, like in, we, I think it was 2006, because he fought it for a while. At, around that time, Bruce Gary, I uh, got a call from somebody who was really good friends with him, that he was in the hospital. He didn't take, he had not non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but he didn't do any chemo treatments. He didn't want to go that route. So on one hand, I was saying goodbye to Bruce. On the other hand, Doug was fighting it. It was very strange at the time, you know. Um, so Doug managed to keep going, you know. He got a lot of chemo treatments and he had improvement. And then he, he regressed. So he did get four years of playing with Doug throughout the, uh, uh, his cancer. So he really fought and he did pretty, pretty amazing, you know. So Doug passed away on Valentine's Day in 2010. And, and um, leading up to that, I had been playing, there's YouTube clips of myself playing Sharona with my kids. Um, Gabe, great drummer, and, and my daughter, Liv, became a great lead guitar player. And, and Noah was playing guitar as well. Liv just had a gift for it. She was a late, late starter. So the night Doug passed away, um, I was, a, I was a, a judge on a show in L.A. about, um, it was like an offshoot of The Voice, you know, it was like amateur, you know, performers playing, and then you vote to who wins, right? So in tribute to Doug, we did Sharona that night, and Leif Garrett sang it, by the way, which was pretty trippy, you know? And uh, that's on YouTube as well. So there's clips of, of playing Sharona with... Them with uh, the Nelsons, by the way, there's a great clip of doing Sharona with him. And, um, you know, Gabe can really play the drum parts, my, my son Gabe, you know. So we, and he's also fills in on missing person shows. So it's, it's very cool to play my Sharona with my son, you know. Pleasure chatting with you and uh, best of luck with missing persons and best of luck with the band as well, your, your kids' band. Thank you so much for doing it. And I hope to play in Scotland one day. Yes, absolutely. And I'll be, I'll be there to watch you. Prescott Niles there. I hope you did enjoy that interview. As I said, very open and honest about events and people within the band and situations they found themselves in. He's still working with uh, missing persons. And as he was saying, his children have a group too called Gateway Drugs. So definitely go and check them out.
Right, it's the time of the show for the top fives and a chance to offer up my top five songs from The Knack. But first, let's reflect on last week's choice, Black Sabbath, thanks to my interview with the second longest serving Sabbath singer, Tony Martin. Please do go back and check that one out if you haven't done so already. Great stories about Tony Iommi and Cozy Powell, Eddie Van Halen and playing behind the Iron Curtain and much more as well. Definitely recommended. Anyway, you've been commenting on my choices, which were War Pigs at number one, two was Paranoid, three Heaven and Hell, four Fairies Wear Boots, and five Supernaut. And you were offering up your own choices too. Sammy Peterman agreeing with me on War Pigs as the best, uh, as did Indispensable Music and Media on Twitter. Pat Power agreed with a couple of my choices with Ronnie Dio's Heaven and Hell as his number one. Not surprisingly, Iron Man got a few shouts to be included in the top five. I missed it off my list. Uh, they came from likes of Bob Nemechek and Louis Rodriguez Aliaga, while Paul Graham said that would be his walk-on entrance theme tune if he ever needed one. Uh, Eduardo Perez on Twitter offered up a great list headed by Wheels of Confusion, which was also in the top five of fellow Twitter user Tim Tyrrell, whose list was headed by Hole in the Sky. Mike Norris's list was topped by Planet Caravan, which is another great song, while Andy Old tried to list top five, but uh, he ended up with about ten on there, as, as he said he couldn't leave any out. Thanks to uh, everybody who's in touch with their choices. I love seeing how your lists differ to mine and what tracks we agree on as well. Common Consensus definitely rallied around my number one, though, War Pigs, with that track being the most chosen from everyone's lists combined. Anyway, that was last week's So Now for today's list. Now remember, this is my personal favourite list. It's the songs I enjoy the most. It's subjective, so it's okay for you to disagree. So here we go. My favourite five songs from The Knack, according to The Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a track I'm guessing most people would expect to be much higher. It's an upbeat track and was a big hit from their debut album. At five is Good Girls Don't. Good Girls Don't, At four is a song from their third album, Round Trip. It's another beaty, upbeat, rousing number sticking to their tried and tested subject matter of girls and boys. And number four is Boys Go Crazy. is their big song from their comeback in 1991. It went top 10 on the mainstream rock chart in the US. It's a much more powerful sound than the raw stripped-back feel of earlier albums, with Doug's vocals more in keeping with that kind of late 80s, early 90s rock vibe. At three is Rocket of Love. Two is a track that we'll probably hardly ever get a mention, to be honest, but it's a really good song. It's got a really groovy beat to it, with great drumming as well, and a brilliant solo from Burton, who's an underrated guitarist. It's another track from their third album, Round Trip. And number two is Africa. It's just got to be. And 
at number one is the song you would expect it to be. It couldn't be anything else, really, could it? Written about a real girl who Doug became infatuated with, and then they became a couple. It's also the actual Sharona on the cover of the single two she's pictured, which many people didn't know that at the time. My favourite, the Knack song, and the number one on my list is the biggest selling single in the US in 1979. It is, of course, My Sharona. There you go, my favourite five songs from The Knack. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Where do you agree or disagree? Let me know your top fives. Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, and I'll give you a mention on next week's episode. Now, if this is your first listen to The Vintage Rock Pod, then please make sure to follow or subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you use so you don't miss any new episodes that drop. They usually come out every Monday. And please do go back and check out the back catalogue of incredible big-name guests as well. It was fun listening to Prescott mention certain bands he'd worked with or seen live when he was younger, many of whom I've had on the series before, like Yorma Kalkinen from Jefferson Airplane, The Who's Kenny Jones, and, and many others as well. It's definitely worth checking out the back catalogue of interviews here on the Vintage Rock Pod, with 13 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers included. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, then. Until episode 56, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of classic rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at IntoHistory.com.